All right, if you will go ahead and turn in your copy of the Bible um, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending time today in God's Word. And if you do not have a copy of, of God's Word accessible to you, like whether it's on a device or in print copy, you're so more, certainly more than welcome to use the Bibles that are in the pew in front of you. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's going to be on page 1065 is where we're going to be finding ourselves today. And if you do not have a copy of the Bible that's, like I said, readable or accessible, we want to provide that one that's in the pew to you. It's us to you, free of charge. Um, we can certainly replace it with another one. But we found these Bibles to be not only readable, but faithful and, uh, and accurate when it comes to the translation of God's Word and making it known into uh, English for the readers in our culture. So, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into it. We're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 7 today. Much of that because we're recapping a lot of details that we've kind of already looked at. And the writer of Hebrews is, is highlighting these as he's making the, the bold, confident, well-established case of Jesus being better so we're going to stand, and, and I'm going to begin in verses 23 through 28. I know not everybody can stand for reading all 28 verses, so I'm going to read just five of them, but we're going to be looking at the chapter together. But these five verses kind of highlight where we are ultimately going, where the Bible is making this case to us. And so, the Word of the Lord says this in, in verses 23 through 28. Now, many have become Levitical priest since they are prevented by death from remaining in office but because he remains forever he holds his priesthood permanently therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them for this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when He offered Himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Lord Jesus, today as we spend time in Your Word, I pray You would help us to gain a deeper understanding of, of who You are, uh, of what You have done, and what this means for our life. And that as You speak to us in Your Word, we would be people who have ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that follow, feet that will move us forward, hands that will do the work You have called us to, that we would be people of true faith, awakened by Your grace. Today, Lord, show us what it means that You are once for all time through the work of the cross and the resurrection from the tomb, our High Priest forever, and this gives us confidence to boldly declare that You are better, You are worthy, You are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're looking at 
this this letter to the Hebrews, as it's called, the the uh, a book of the New Testament of the Bible, in which the writer, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is communicating to other Hebrew people, really two groups of people within the church: those who are were Hebrew and and are saved through true faith; those who are Hebrew and have come to admire Jesus, have come to draw near to Jesus, but due to the constraints and the conflicts and the confrontations of this world and in their own community are drifting away. So there are those who are truly saved and those who are appear to have things of faith but are not. And the writer is telling those who are truly saved, this is your confidence. This is why you are so loved and why what we have in Jesus is the greatest of all prizes. That you could not ask for more when you have Jesus because you have all that there is. You have everything. Uh, you can't add to Jesus. There's just no way. I mean, what are you going to add? He's infinite. He's eternal. He's perfect. Can also never take away from Jesus because he's infinite and he's eternal and he's perfect. And so when you have Jesus, you have the greatest of all prizes. And for those that were a part of the, the early Hebrew Christian church but were not yet a part of true faith, and some of them were drifting away, the writer is encouraging them, saying, Come to true faith in Jesus, see what is, is communicated in the gospel, see the beauty of of it. And, and why would you go back to this old way of life where all the sacrifices, all the law, all these high priests, when you have one who has already been the ultimate sacrifice, when you have the one who already is the ultimate priest, and everything he is supersedes all that was. And so as we are looking at this scenario, one of the things that we come to see is that Jesus holds for us an office that we desperately need. You see, over a course of this letter, we divide it up in chapters and verses. It's, it's important to remember the chapters and verses were added later on so people could have a reference point whenever they're looking, but they're not natural to the text itself. Those are just for our benefit to, to learn together and study together. So if you see a three and, a, and, and another number, those, those numbers aren't holy, those aren't original. But they are for us to learn together. But in this whole letter, the writer spends an incredible amount of time focusing on Jesus as our high priest. And what he does spending time here is actually unlike any of the other books of the New Testament. Many of the other books of the New Testament will, will talk about Jesus as being our mediator. They'll talk about Jesus being our King. Jesus being our Gospel. But the book of Hebrews focuses in and says this is the priest that the Hebrew people desperately waited for and the Gentiles desperately need. And so as we look at this together, we're going to see this focus about Jesus having a priesthood. And you may think, well... The Hebrew people, I've read the part of the Old Testament, from what I understand, they already had a temple. They already had a system of priests. They already had a system of sacrifices. They already had a system of communicating the law. Why did God need to do something new? Because as good as they were, 
They were provisional. They were an act of God holding a part of His promise until He could fulfill the provision of His ultimate promise. It was a part of the old covenant until that new full covenant that was not held together by our own deeds or our own works, but by His work was brought together. And so we ask this question, what is the writer so adamantly calling the readers to understand about Jesus' priesthood? And, and what is more, if the writer of Hebrews is there, and we must remember that all of the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, totally good for all of His people, what is God telling us to once again engage and hear on this subject that is, is spent enormous amounts of time speaking about? So today we're going to look at this text. And, and looking at the very first text, we see that Jesus is given an extraordinary priesthood. A priesthood unlike that which the Levites had. In fact, His priesthood was one that would model the King Melchizedek. Over and over, the writer of Hebrews is bringing forth this, this person whose name is really hard to pronounce and sometimes really difficult to spell, if I'm honest. I mean, I've spent time, I'm like, no, that's not right. I see that little red squiggly line on my keyboard. No, that's not right. But even when I pronounce it and write it out right, the red little squiggly line comes up because Microsoft Word does not recognize Melchizedek. And neither do most Christians. That's a figure we don't really know. We don't really hear a lot of time about him. I mean, think about it. Of all the times you've spent in the Bible, there may not have been a lot of lessons about him. You might be familiar with characters like Abraham, or uh, Jonah, or Noah, or Jesus. All these people, and I, I know that sounds really condescending. I'm not really meaning it like that, but... These figures that, man, these are familiar names. I can, I can tell you a little bit about what I know about Paul and all these, but Melchizedek? That's just obscure, it seems like. And of course it's a little bit obscure because the text about Melchizedek is only found in a small passage in Genesis 14 in Psalm 110 and then sprinkled throughout the pages of the book of Hebrews. That is the only place you're going to see references to this figure. But it's so saturating in the book of Hebrews, taking us back to this person, we need to recognize his importance as a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be. And so what we see of Melchizedek, the Bible tells us in, in verses 1 and 2 of, of Hebrews, it says that he was the king of Salem, meaning he was the king of a place that was named after peace, and his name means king of righteousness. And that Jesus holds a priesthood forever is in the order of Melchizedek. Why would that be the point? Why would that be the case? Because Jesus was from which tribe? Do you remember? Which tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Yeah, good job. All right. I know I didn't say I was going to spring a quiz on you guys this today, but I, I did. I know. But yeah, he was from the tribe of Judah. Guess what the tribe of Judah was not called to do? Be a priest. Only the tribe of Levite had, Levi had that right to be of the priesthood. In fact, if you were a priest, you had to have the heritage and genealogy of your family to trace your roots back to Aaron and his family of the people of, of Levi. You had to be able to say, this is, this is why I had this right to be in this service. But Jesus was not. But yet, Jesus' priesthood supersedes that of the Levites. Why is that? 
Because there was a priesthood that existed before the Levites. There was a priesthood that existed before the Levites were even established in the law. Before the book of Exodus gives us these commands for the tabernacle. Before the book of Levi, Leviticus speaks out the role of these priests. There is a priesthood that existed before them. A priesthood that was so honored that even Abraham, who would go on to become Abraham, the forefather, the faith figure, the one that all Jewish people look back and say, this is our one ancestor that began a nation. He honored this man. He gave offerings as Melchizedek blessed him. He also blessed Melchizedek. So you see that, that this is not just some figure that rolls up and says, oh yeah, he's important, you'll get to him later. It's someone that Abram himself found worthy of honor. Picture this, in the moment of, of Genesis 14, here is, is Abram. Abram has just come back from fighting. He has rounded up an army of 318 men. And this is while Abraham, Abram is somewhere in his late 70s, early 80s. And he's come back and, and you, you can just almost picture that his men are holding him in high esteem. He's not lost one of them. And he's delivered some kings in their cities. He's delivered his nephew Lot. And out comes this, this one who is known and declared as a priest of God Most High. He's not a polytheistic or, or heathen or pagan priest. There were many of those. That was saturated in the culture. They believed in a hedonistic type of, of, of culture um, where you had these little gods and then you had a little bit higher God and then you had this little bitty God or, or higher God than that and it was this hierarchy. But he was a priest of the one and only God Most High. He's recognized as such. And the writer of Hebrews takes us back and says, Jesus' priesthood is superior because it, its root is found in something that superseded this established law. And it's also something that was prophesied would supersede it. In Psalm 110, it says, prophesying about the coming Messiah, that He would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In Zechariah chapter 6, it says this king who is coming that will sit on the throne will be a priest forever. And so it's foretelling that there would be something that this was provisional through the tribe of Levi, but God was going to send something more, something that was necessary, something that was completely sufficient and good. And we see this in a type pushed back in the Bible to see this is what it would look like and yet how Jesus is so far greater. We see the principles in, in, in this layout of, of why it, we're to look at Melchizedek as this type, as this foreshadowing. We see Melchizedek blesses Abram and Melchizedek is honored by Abram. And so we see these principles being stated that this is why you can trust the order and priesthood of Jesus. Because you know what would probably happen? When people started saying, I'm following Jesus, He is my ultimate high priest. You ever ran into someone that seemed to know more text out of the Bible than you did, but you knew they weren't a believer? Isn't that the weirdest thing? It's just a little strikingly odd. I am going to seek to learn and know every word that is said here, and yet I won't believe any of it, but I will use these words to try to bring conflict 
and be contrary to those who do believe. So you could see people who would be Hebrew followers and said, Jesus is my priest and king. And they would be like, ah, 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 that's not a good thing. Because in the days of Isaiah, there was a king whose name was Isaiah. Uh, he is also known as Asa. He tried to have this role of being a king and a priest. And guess what? When he went into the tabernacle, uh, the temple, he was struck with leprosy. He was struck with leprosy. That was like a, 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 a big moment. He may say, well, that's an obscure figure. I don't even know who Uzziah is. That's like the Melchizedek. I don't know who those people are. Well, let's take a bigger figure. King Saul. His kingdom was stripped away from him. Because he tried to play the role of a priest. And so those who are of the Jewish faith may say, how could you say this Jesus? How could you say He is your priest and He is your King? They had questioned His resurrection, but now going back to their text, and the writer of Hebrews says, but see, the text points back both before the Levitical law and after that there would be a kingly priest that would not be of the order that we've known because He would last forever. You see, that was the problem. That was the problem that the writer of Hebrews and the Lord inspiring him was pushing the people to see. He says, this is why you need a greater priest. You need someone and something permanent. You need something that will last. Because a priest, according to rabbinical tradition, could only hold the office of being a priest and serve for 20 to 30 years. Now, that's a long time. But after that, they were retired. Or they died. One of the two. That was what happened. It was the natural way of things. And so they said, what you need is someone permanent, someone lasting, someone eternal. You need someone preeminent. Verses 7-10 through 10 talks about the preeminency, the supremacy, if you will, of Jesus. He says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In, one, in the one case, men who will die, receive a tenth. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that He lives. It's going on to say that what Jesus has done is He's done something and is someone that not only will always last, but someone who will always be higher. Elevated to a greater stature far beyond any earthly system we have. There's a problem. The writer goes on to say, not only was there a problem with the priesthood not lasting and they having to have new priests over and over again. And then you never really knew if one priest to another, whether they were going to be good people or not. Sometimes you had really terrible people that were going to inherit the role of the priesthood. You had people that were really trying to do their best, but they were boneheads. And then you had people that just were like, well, I, I, I inherited this title because of my genealogy, because I have the right last name. So I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Case in point, the boneheads. You have Nabuah and Adibi. I'm mispronouncing Just go to Leviticus. You see the sons of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, you see the sons of Aaron, the first high priest. They wanted to make a spectacle and honor the Lord, but also wanted to gain attention to themselves. They present a censer, and a fire with incense to the Lord that was not prescribed. It was not called for. And God sends His fire to devour them. That was dishonorable. He, he smokes those guys. Literally. And so you had these sons that, that were imperfect. 
Then you had the sons of Eli. Whenever you look at uh, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 2 and 3, you see these sons of Eli. Eli is the priest over the tabernacle, but his sons are evil. They're playing the role of, of prostituting out ladies that are coming to the temple courts. They're taking more than they have been prescribed. You would have the times within, within the history of Israel, whenever they had established themselves as a nation, when they were prosperous, and yet these priests would allow idol worship to sometimes infiltrate the temple itself. So you had a problem. The law told people what to do, but it didn't make everyone righteous. It didn't make them all qualified. It had imperfections. And so the writer of Hebrews in verses 18 and 19, he says this previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we can draw near to God. See what was before? While it was provisional, it was unprofitable. It did not get to the ultimate goal of ultimate salvation. It could not. And so what is the lesson from these areas? What is the lesson? If you are attempting to just find your own way to peace with God, to righteousness, to becoming a good person and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, I'm going to let you know there are imperfections and flaws and that proves unprofitable because we are not able to get there ourselves Try as much as we may, as good as our intentions may be, it does not cover it. And so we need someone to provide a better way, a greater way, a better hope. We need something more than what's just provisional for a small period of time, but something that covers us forever. And this is where the declaration of how Jesus is so awesome and so amazing. In verse 16, it says, that Jesus did not become a priesthood based on legal regulations about their physical descent, but it's based on the power of an indestructible life. This is why Jesus holds this. Because the order of Melchizedek, this priesthood that was before the Levites and was prophesied after, is not based on who their mom and them was. It's not based on that. It's based on that Jesus is ultimately holy and He's indestructible. He will not be destroyed. He is endless. He has the power of an endless life. And because He has the power of an endless life, this is the good news. If He has the power of endless life within Him, He also has the prospect of eternal life for those who trust in Him. He has the prospect that that He holds this out, this gift of grace, that those that will respond in true faith. That's why I say prospect. Because I know as much as it's communicated as as Clearly as it's communicated at times, there will be people that Jesus holds the gospel gift out and they will sin and they'll be like, eh. That's why the book of Hebrews is warning people, don't do that. Don't be a, that person that, that sees that, oh, that looks good, I can understand why people would be there, but I'm going to walk away. Seeing all the bold promise. Jesus, because He has the power of an indestructible life, an endless life. He holds out for all who will trust in Him and all who will continue to trust in Him. As many as will be called, He holds out the prospect of eternal life. 
This is why the Bible says that His purpose, His job title, if you're looking for one for Jesus, is not only King, is not only Prophet, is not only Messiah, but it's Priest. It's Priest. I know there are some in this room that, that you come from a background where you've had priests before. You, you may have come from a Catholic background. And, and, and you may have had good experiences with that or incredibly negative experiences. I don't know what your experience is. But I want you to know that the priesthood the Bible describes is one that is infinitely greater, infinitely more glorious, and infinitely good to those who believe. And for those of us in this room that maybe we know what a priest is, but we've never had one and never felt the need for one. I want to draw you back to Hebrews and it says, oh, yeah, you do. And we want to show you that his name is Jesus because he is infinitely glorious, infinitely graceful, infinitely good. And he is making this known to us that the purpose of Jesus holding this title is so that he who was made a priest forever will be the one that never dies again. After the sacrifice of the cross, after going and paying that price and dying once, He lives forever. He never needs to be replaced. This is His purpose. To be that priest forever. And when we see that purpose, when we see the power that's in Him, when we see the prospect of eternal life that He holds us, we see that that promise that God made in the Old Testament, that He says, one day I'm going to do this. We see it now fulfilled. It gives us hope that God is indeed the One who makes promises that never fails. He keeps them all. Verses 20-22 through says, none of this happened without an oath. None of this happened without God's promise in saying it was going to be this way. It says, for others became a priest without an oath. They became a priest out of obligation, not because of oath. They became a priest because this is what you were mandated to do, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is a priest because this is who you will be as I have made a promise to provide for my children. He became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Jesus says, because of this oath, because of this promise, because of this hope, because God's Word declared is so good and solid and firm and assured, Jesus has also, among the many gifts that He has given us, He is also the guarantee of a better covenant. Of all the things that the world offers and say, here, uh, sign on the dotted line, look here, look at the terms and conditions and then totally ignore them and you'll get this nice prize. Look at this, this contract. Jesus holds forth and says, look at my hands. Look at my heart. Look at who I am as your priest and I offer you a better covenant that will last forever. And my terms and conditions are come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will be the one to give you rest. I will do immeasurably more in you than you even asked or imagined. This is what is found in Jesus. The guarantee, the assurance, the solid foundation of that better covenant that we all needed and that God foretold He would give and fulfill. 
So what does this mean for us now? You may say, that's good, Pastor. I understand. Uh, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I know Jesus is my Savior. I understand that He's my priest. And, and I get that that should give me a firm foundation. But what about living from that? What, what does that mean now? What, what does that mean in light of this? As if, if I'm following Jesus in this way. Look at verses 23-24. through It says, Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because He remains forever, He holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who have come to God through Him. Here's the first thing. Jesus will never die. He will always abide. Any other person we could continually seeking to be our hope and our remedy for the troubles of this life will ultimately fade away because that's just the way of life. But Jesus is one who never dies. And we can abide in that. But here's what it also means. Let us not treat Jesus like He's dead. Let us not treat Jesus like He ain't around no more. Let us not treat Jesus with a lesser than faith that says, You did all things to restore me and reconcile me and draw me to You but I'm just going to pretend like you're the person on the back burner. But that it doesn't really matter. Let us remember that He abides forever. And that because He abides forever, He's the one that holds us and preserves our, our grace and our salvation forever. We were saved by His work of grace to begin with. We're saved throughout because of His work of grace from then on. But we're also meant to honor Him as the One who is alive. The One who is worthy of following. Going back once again to Abram and Melchizedek. What did Abram do when Melchizedek blessed him? He honored him. He did something then. He'd be like, oh, that's cool. See you later. No, he took time to say, I recognize you are worthy of honor. And that was an earthly king-priest. How much more so to the One who lives forever, who holds us forever, who gives us a better covenant. Let us know and treat Him as the One who abides, who fulfills every one of His good promises. So why would we ever forsake Him or forsake them? It's the hope of that preservation. Not only do we have that, but we have a pardon. A pardon of a better covenant. You look at Jeremiah chapter 31. I didn't have it in the text. It's not on the, on the screen behind us. It might can be in a minute. But Jeremiah 31, this just is there of this new covenant. This is why you see all the other things as provisional. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration 
When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. And write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of these to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And so when we see that Jesus is the guarantee of this better covenant, this new covenant that was promised all along, Jesus didn't just happen to show up on the scene one day and like, hey, you know what? I think I'll just do something new. No, He's fulfilling it all. And so when we see this guarantee, we say, wow! Wow! His pardon, His new covenant that forgives my sin and remembers my iniquity no more, man, that is potent stuff. No one else could do that for me. No one else could do that once and for all time for me. Even the highest and best of most honored high priests that there were in the days of Israel, guess what they had to do? Sacrifice all over again, all over again, all over again. Every day. Every day they would have to do that. And there was one incredibly bloody day, the Day of Atonement, where he was able to go into the high, the, the Holy of Holies. But every other day, they were outside offering these sacrifices making offerings to honor God and praise, but offering sacrifices because people are like, you know what? Yep, I sinned again. You know what? I sinned again. And if we're honest, we sit here today, even though we know grace and are marveled, just enamored by how awesome God is, we still sin. But the potency of this pardon is that Jesus says, I cover all of it. Once for all time through the cross. Never again will I have to be re-crucified. Never again will I come and do that because what I did then is done for all. It's potent. And the process through which we come to this better covenant is, is drawing near to Him in faith. And we become His people. But the prerequisite is that of faith. Based on His payment. Jesus had to be the priest for us to stand between us and the Lord, but He also had to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is why this guarantee is so good. The Bible calls this payment that Jesus made that He was not only the priest, He was the propitiation. That's a big theological word of the day, I know. Propitiation is a gift that is offered to reconcile the offended. A gift offered to reconcile the offended. There is no question whatsoever that the offended has the right to be offended. He absolutely has the right. And we, the offenders, need to make a payment. But here's the problem with our need for that offense. Nothing we have could clear the check. 
Nothing we had. We would have insufficient funds. There was no payment that we could make. And so Jesus being the ultimate priest is the one who says, not only will I be the one that says, draw near to the Lord. But when it comes to that payment that has to be made, because the Bible makes it clear, without the shedding of blood, the costly, dear, precious blood, without the shedding of it, there cannot be a remission of sins. It is impossible. And so what does Jesus do? He is the pardon and the propitiation. The offended takes the price of the offender. He becomes the ultimate payment by the cross once and for all. Never to be returned to. So that this relationship with Jesus would not be like the old way of the law which was imperfect and unprofitable. It would be perfection to the uttermost. It would be the way of peace. Looking at verses 26 and 20 through 28, this is what it, it kind of comes back in and, and relishes. I'll actually start at verse 25. It says, Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of holy high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when He offered Himself. The law appoints high priests as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Jesus being that sacrifice on behalf of the offender to the offended says my sacrifice is one that is undefiled. It is perfect. And it makes the relationship restored between God and man, which is the role that the priest held to begin with, to mediate restoration between God and man, it brings it and makes it perfect and makes it peace. You see, you may not have come in this church today going into a Baptist church thinking they're going to be talking about a priesthood today. Because it's just not normal conversation. But what Jesus has communicated is what you didn't know you needed, I have far exceeded. And for those who thought about priesthood and saw those things later on, he's taking that idea and taking it to another level and saying, this is why there's no one else like me. This is why I fulfill it once and for all. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today uh, we've tried through song and, and through preaching to, to just elevate your name and to say that you are better and that what you do is far grander than we sometimes comprehend. And today as we come to this moment of response, I pray that you would help us to, to see that you are our, our living hope. You are the one who transforms who we are and that we are loved and we are welcome into this holy presence with you. And none of it, none of it, absolutely not one iota of it 
was our doing. Because we don't have, no matter what the last name is, we don't have a right genealogy, and that wouldn't cut it. We don't have the right righteousness on our own, that, and, and that wouldn't cut it. We don't have anything to really offer to make this peace where there was no peace, to bring righteousness where there was such a desperate need. But because of who you are and your great love that you had for us, we can draw near. We can see the power in your endless life and grasp on to this prize of eternal life that you offer us based on who you are, based on what you've done, based on what you proclaim. So Lord, today, as, as there may be some in this room that, that need that peace and restoration with you, would you show them what it means to trust in you? As, as it comes to disciples need to be renewed and, and reset to, to be sent out and launched out to be of your use by your hands. I pray that you would help us to have this response to, to get us ready for just that. Do what you will in this time, Lord Jesus. And let us as your people follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. The music's going to start in a minute. I'll ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And we always offer this time of response at the end. Um, I don't know what a response might be in your life, what God is working on in your heart. Maybe you're in this room and, and you recognize that you have never placed your faith, your trust, you've never Put the reliance of your life into the hands of Jesus, the peacemaker, the promise keeper, the one who is the high priest above all. And today, if that's you and, and God is making you recognize that, that you feel that disturbance in your heart, that you need that peace with Him, you can come and place your trust in Him by first admitting like what all of us have, that we are sinners in need of a great Savior. We're lost and need Him to rescue us. We're drowning and we need His preservation. We need His aid. It's not only admitting that we're sinners, but it's also that belief that this Jesus that has been proclaimed to you, this Jesus that you have heard about, this Jesus of Scripture is the Lord Almighty. He is the one who saves. And you're placing your faith in the one that died for you in your place. The offended taking the price of the offender. And putting your faith in Him. And lastly, it's about confession. That what you admit and you believe, you confess not only with your heart, but with your lips. Saying, I want to follow Jesus. I need to follow Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus is Lord. You can do that today. We would love to help you walk through that if the Lord is impressing that on your heart. No one else can make that decision for you. You don't inherit it. It's between you and God. Perhaps there's others in this room that due to the impression of the greatness of God in your life. He, he's telling you this is the next step of obedience I'm calling you to so that you may grow forward in maturity. That you may live in more obedience. I don't know what that may look like for you. Maybe it's biblical baptism. Maybe it's uh, becoming a part of church membership. But whatever 
we can do to help you take that next step, we want to help you. And I'm going to be down in the front. If the Lord is leading you and you need to talk to someone, I'll be available. But the point is following the Lord's leading. Do that. He does not lead astray.